Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing They All Laughed, released November 20th, 1981. It was written by Peter Bogdanovich and Blaine Novak, directed by Bogdanovich and released by Moon Pictures. In its earliest form, director Bogdanovich envisioned the film as a vehicle for his ex Sybil Shepard and Dudley Moore, but it's unclear if that project shared anything beyond a title with this final product. He was married to both? Yes. <laughs> I think I would have liked whatever that was more yeah, than this. It could have been good. <laughs> it's funny because Sybil Shepard would go on to be a detective on Moonlighting. Oh, yeah. Bogdanovich started this second incarnation with a desire to tell a personal story, but hide it in a genre film, in this case, a private detective comedy. Bogdanovich didn't bother with an authentic approach to detective work, and so never visited a PI office, because that wasn't the point. Was this a comedy? Yes. He was falling in love with actress Dorothy Stratton during the production, and briefly considered playing the John Ritter part himself. Colleen Camp's Christy Miller character was based on, and written specifically for her, Audrey Hepburn's story in the film was basically her real-life situation. Her second husband was, at the time, cheating on her, and they stayed together for her son. She had even been romantically linked to actor Ben Gazzara, who plays her love interest in the film, after they appeared together in Bloodlines, 1979. Most depressingly, of all the connections to real life, it turns out Dorothy Stratton's husband, Paul Snyder, had actually hired a private investigator, not unlike the men in this film, to keep tabs on her during the production, and learned that she was now living with the director. Oh, God. The production was supposed to last 20 days, but weather caused delays and producers demanded scenes to be cut, affecting the pacing of the film's final edit. To save money on permits, 10 extras were hired to physically block the camera from the side of the public at all times. <laughs> so they just had to, like, crowd around it so you couldn't tell they were filming when they were shooting outside. Huh. The film's major cast were only provided their lines just prior to shooting. An early draft had Christie singing mostly jazz songs, but in the wake of Urban Cowboy, New York City had a short fascination with country music, and Bogdanovich was able to adjust the script on the fly to match it. And he wrote most of the lyrics to these songs, too. I thought country was kind of a weird choice. It was not weird for about three months in 1981. <laughs> and then after that, it was weird again. Immediately after production wrapped, actress Dorothy Stratton, who had struck up a relationship with Bogdanovich, approached her estranged husband, Paul Snyder, to ask for a divorce. She went in person against the advice of friends and associates and found Snyder intoxicated and angry. He used a shotgun to kill Stratton and himself, and their story has been memorialized in the form of Bob Fosse's 1983 film Star 80, starring Mariel Hemingway as Stratton, Eric Roberts as Snyder, and Cliff Robertson as Hugh Hefner. Inspired casting, I thought. And again, by TV movie Death of a Centerfold, the Dorothy Stratton story with Jamie Lee Curtis in the lead. Frank Sinatra granted Bogdanovich rights to his song They All Laughed for only $5,000 because he felt sorry for the director in the wake of Stratton's death. Time Life Films, who had produced the project, collapsed before the film's release thanks to the box office failures of Loving Couples and Fort Apache the Bronx. When the distributor, 20th Century Fox, test-marketed the film, the numbers were abysmal and they decided against releasing it. 
Bogdanovich met with every major studio to pick up distribution, but they all passed on account of the film's tragic backstory. Sorry, I was hung up on the fact that you said that it was Frank Sinatra's song. I guess it was his version that was in here. Yes. It's not his song. Infuriated, Bogdanovich bought the film back with $5 million of his own money, and its eventual small-scale release only earned $1 million back. Bogdanovich has since admitted that self-distributing was a terrible idea, but nobody talked him out of it. He was convinced by very positive reactions from limited engagements, but many chains and venues ditched the film even after a successful start because major studios were dropping their Oscar bait like Reds, and Bogdanovich didn't have the muscle to hold onto the screens. Understandably, he wasn't eager to rush back to work, and it was four years before his next film, Mask, would hit theaters. Early in this film's theatrical run, Colleen Camp appeared as herself in WKRP in Cincinnati episode, Love, Exciting and New, promoting the film on the station. Ms. Camp, you're here in the Queen City for the opening of the new... Bogdanovich film, are you not? Bogdanovich. Yes, well, whatever. They all laughed. Excuse me? That's the name of the picture. It opens here in Cincinnati on Friday. Before picture, we see a quick title dedicating the film to Dorothy Stratton. The film opens in a cab driven by a woman named Deborah Wilson, who we'll come to know as Sam for no discernible reason. In the back seat, she has Leon Leondopoulos, owner of the Odyssey Detective Agency. He already seems disappointed by the ride before she starts smoking, and then he rolls down his window more, so she tosses the cigarette out the window. The taxi skids up to a parking lot right on the water in New York, and he's met by Ben Gazzara as John Russo. John and the cab driver exchange flirtatious glances. John is here to track the wife of a client arriving now by helicopter. They set down on the asphalt and a man, woman, and son step off the chopper. The woman is Angela Neotes, played by Audrey Hepburn. Leon greets the trio and leads them away to a luxury car, and Sam, the cabbie, pulls up in front of John to tail it. Sam is as confused as I am that Leon is riding in the luxury car with the man, woman, and child, but she affects a bizarre accent when asking about it. Who's your friend with a beard? You a mafia or something? You smoke too much. Doing a lot better. Used to be three packs. Your friend with the beard is weird. It's like, I guess it's New Jersey, but she doesn't have a New Jersey accent for the rest yeah, of the movie. Yeah, I, I think that there's a series of things in this opener that made my understanding of this movie so much more difficult than it yeah. needed to be. Because we'll learn this guy runs the detective agency. And they know this woman who's the cab driver. Right. Like, it's not coincidental that she's the cab driver. And I'm like, you don't put a, you know, pretty blonde lady as your cab driver if it, if it wasn't meant to be a character in your movie. Right. But I didn't understand why somebody else was meeting him there, who this guy was to the family that I thought that they ended up trailing. Like I, I, I think Leon so is basically posing as, like, the guy like in charge of guide? their security. Okay, sure, security. And, and so because this guy is like a high-profile rich guy, he has a security team that meets them when they land a helicopter and takes them to their car to get where they're going. And she's not supposed to know that this guy also runs the detective agency that will be right following her. I around. know that now, but it yes. took me most of the yep. movie to figure this out. Yeah. yeah, It does not spell anything out for you. Yeah, the, that, that was the most frustrating thing because – you keep thinking that there's some kind of mystery or or mischief or bad things are going to happen or but the 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 truth of the matter is the people who know everything already know it yeah. they're just keeping it from the audience right and that was very frustrating yeah sam takes a quick liking to john but gazara is a smooth talker so it feels pretty natural he arranges a date with her that night i don't know what i like better about you freckles or freckles 
He's interrupted in his advances by the sudden appearance of his two young daughters, Stefania and Georgina, played by Bogdanovich's daughters, Antonia and Sashi. He introduces the girls to Sam, and they talk about how much they liked her, in between fighting over Georgina's habit of repeating everything Stefania says. I haven't seen you for two days. It's been two days, Daddy. Shut up, idiot. Stop repeating everything I say. I'm not. You are. Well, maybe she has the same thought. You keep beating it to it. They admit that sometimes they wish their parents were still together, but then start listing all dad's girlfriends who they might not have met, because we'll learn over the course of the film that John has excellent taste in women. He walks the girls to school and assures them that he won't spend tonight alone. We cut across town as a show lets out. Blaine Novak as Arthur Brodsky watches the emerging crowd from across the street, and among them, John Ritter as Charles Rutledge looks confused. He seems to have lost whoever he was in charge of following, so Arthur gestures vaguely in a direction to help Charles out. Following the signal, Charles nearly crashes into his target, Dolores Martin, played by Dorothy Stratton. Charles and Arthur follow her together, and Charles makes it very clear that he is falling for their mark. Dolores stops outside the Algonquin for a moment before stepping inside, and the boys follow her in, not super discreetly. Charles is surprised by a waiter looking to take his order. Arthur stands by a wall of payphones announcing the actions of Dolores' boyfriend, who seems to be flirting with a non-Dolores person. Wait, hold on a second, Amy. The gaucho just showed up. Mrs. Martin's boyfriend. He's got a girl with him I wish I knew. The gaucho, who we'll come to know as Jose, takes a seat with Dolores and apologizes for his tardiness, while Arthur follows the other girl. Arthur bugs her for a cigarette and learns her name is Sylvia. It seems like he actually gets this girl's number before they part ways. Charles watches Dolores and Jose drink glasses of wine with their arms interlocked when his own drink arrives. He takes an absent-minded sip and jams the stirrer up his nose. It's a very slapsticky moment. Yeah, well, John Ritter is great at physical comedy. Yeah, and he's very clumsy and crashing into stuff constantly. Yeah, yeah so th this, this was just like good fun for me to see John Ritter doing his thing. In his element. Later that night, John arrives at a fancy restaurant and watches his target, Angela, from afar while she eats with her son and husband? Yes, it's her husband. He phones Arthur at the Algonquin and Charles notices Dolores preparing to leave, so he follows her out. He and Arthur grab a cab to follow them. They watch the couple ascend neighboring steps into two separate apartments and it becomes clear that Dolores is cheating on her clean-shaven husband with the bearded Jose next door. We watch her argue with her husband through wide open windows to the street. Arthur leaves to meet up with Johnny while Charles keeps an eye on the place. Is this, this is where they have the bop conversation? I think that's a little bit later. Oh, is it? Yeah. Or may, maybe it is here where where they're talking about how she has a boyfriend and she has a husband yeah. and the husband is on the way out and the boyfriend. Yeah. Like he's like, he's going to bop her and then she's going to bop him. And this is, I was like, this is like that Cindy Lauper song. Yeah. We cut to a country western bar where Colleen Camp as Christy Miller is singing on stage. She notices John enter the place and can't even keep the anger out of her vocals as he crosses the bar and waits outside her dressing room. She chews him out for regularly standing her up and he mutes her with a kiss. Unfortunately, honey, here's some kisses. And you're very mean to me. Very mean. He tells her she deserves someone nice. She catches him taking a glance at his watch and is immediately suspicious that he's got a time-sensitive scheme unfolding. Right on cue, there's a knock at the door, 
and when she realizes it's Arthur, she's already predicted the entire conversation. Oh, hello, Johnny. Oh, what's up, kid? Well, we've got, we got a, little a little problem. problem. Yeah, in the Martin case, Leon is furious. Yeah. He's foaming at the mouth. In point of fact, you're right. And he said, if, if you're John not down here right away, you're all fired. Well, I guess you better go. Yeah, I guess I better go. I'll uh, see you soon. Huh? I doubt it. She slams the door behind him. We cut to a roller rink where Dolores is meeting with her friend to go skating. Charles throws on some skates and announces to Arthur that he plans on kissing Dolores tonight. Arthur points out that their client probably wouldn't appreciate that. Arthur does laps around the track collecting new girlfriends. Charles follows behind Dolores and when she spins to face him he loses his balance and falls, but she catches him right above the ground. Are you okay? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Out on the street, John finds Sam in her cab. She says she's starved, and he offers to take her to dinner at a little hole-in-the-wall place. This movie is so ADD. Yeah. Like, it's 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 hard to digest even with your descriptions. Yeah, it's, here. it's hopping back and forth a lot, and it was supposed to be much faster than this. It's so it's so fast, and I don't understand who any of these people are to each other. I, I finally got it by the end of the movie, so I'm right. following along now. But, like, when you're in those moments, you're like, who are these people to And there's each other? a few of them that are a little bit interchangeable. Absolutely. By the time when we went to go see Christy for the first time here in the bar, we've now introduced our third blonde woman in this movie. Yeah. And I'm like, which one is this? I thought it was yeah. one of the other two, but it's not. It's a it's a whole. But she new sets herself apart over the course of the film. But right away, you're like, who is this on stage? I don't. Right. And so I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to know this. This is one of the girls we already met, or yeah. one of the sidekicks of the girls we already met. I don't know. Yeah. So it's it's very frustrating. Sometime later, we see Charles pretending to read Dolores' palm. He tells her that her marriage line is short, and she also has a bad romance line. Boy, it doesn't leave me with much, does it? Well, now, I, I don't know. There's, there's something new right here. It's very promising. You see this line? It goes on forever. Maybe that's my skating line. Your skating your true passion line. He asks if she's getting divorced just before Jose shows up at the door and he quickly relays his phone number as she skates away to the man. He can't even get his skates off to follow them away. One of Arthur's girlfriends seems to be leaving with Dolores and Jose so he follows them out. Charles follows as closely as he can but he still can't get that last skate off and they dive into a cab where Arthur has to literally cut the laces off to free his friend's foot. I think I think it's also more confusing the little things that I think I know, they contradict in the mm -hmm. film. So I think they're private investigators. I don't, we haven't really fully established right, right. that yet where, you know, we understand that more later when they actually go into the office and we figure that out. Yeah. But the fact that he's, they're all conversing with the people that they're supposed to be yeah. watching. It seems very counterintuitive. Makes it, makes it seem like, well, you're not being professional. I don't understand what is happening here. Are you investigating her for yourself or are you being paid to do this? I don't yeah. know what's happening. If if you started the movie Chinatown or the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep in the middle of the case and you had no idea who these players are as they're coming yeah. in and out, but everyone else seems to know what they're doing and who, who these people are, it would be very frustrating. Yeah. You open a detective story, which is what this is supposed to be disguised as, Yeah. with... You're then supposed to have the person the walks into the room and says, here's what I need you to do. Yeah. And so we start to follow. Now, you can still do it this way, but we need to be led in a little bit more. Yeah. We're, not, we're, we're so shut out till almost the end of act three where I don't, it was like, even like, I'm, it was like, 
I get it. I but this whole movie has been very frustrating. Yeah, because <laughs> I didn't and, get it. And the whole time I was trying to keep a list in my head of scenes that I was like, I don't understand at all what was happening in this scene, and I and I had to keep checking things off as they explain it later. <laughs> and but then it got hard to keep the list going in my head because there's like there's six scenes that I'm not quite understanding and eventually everything gets wrapped up yeah but it happens in such a weirdly chronological way that you're just like some of these things could have been solved earlier or not even brought up as issues yeah probably i i wonder how much of that is is, as you're talking about due to the fact that they re yeah i don't know while they were shooting i don't know how much uh how much actual explanation was lost in that uh in that change because it does seem like a stylistic choice yeah but the fact that the pacing was supposed to be faster, that it was supposed to be jumping from scene to scene faster than it is, makes me feel like I might have had an even harder time putting it together. Right. But maybe it's supposed to be like that. It's like, no, this is just a movie where everything's happening at super high speed and you have to watch it a few times to even figure out what's going on. But that's not going to translate to a lot of money for you as a filmmaker. Yeah. Because if people come out of a movie confused, they're not going to be like, I'm going to solve it and go buy another ticket. Well, I feel like, you know, the the... You mentioned it um, yesterday when you were watching that that uh, the way Christy talks is 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 mid Atlantic kind of the yeah. way she she's you know very formal and, and articulate thirties sort of character yeah. yeah and so I think that that's trying to mimic yeah those thirties those forties um, well the know. fact that she's wearing shoes from the thirties made me think that that right. was on purpose and and so those are then that's when those the detective sort of stories were coming out which makes sense that they're kind of calling back to it but I think that those fast talking movies were only fast in their talking they were not fast in the way that they were cut or the way that the stories were put right, together yeah. they were actually very slow to unfold yeah and a scene would just like dissolved to black every time at the end <laughs> but um colleen camp is by far my favorite person in this movie she's so funny in this she's definitely a unique character yeah again they set up shop across the street and this time dolores follows jose into the neighboring place charles looks upset about it suddenly dolores comes running down the stairs and then up the stairs into her own apartment and arthur suggests that something i.e charles must have changed her mind and he's pretty excited about it she talks on the phone for a bit and her husband comes out to yell at her for a while before she walks away. The next morning, we see Sam dropping off John outside the Odyssey Detective Agency. He notices Arthur gesturing for a favor and John knocks on the window of a restaurant to distract a waitress named Rita so that Arthur can sneak by into the building. Now, if he can sneak by, he doesn't need a distraction. If he can squat lower than this window... He doesn't need anyone to draw attention to the window and trick anyone into looking out the window. And how many times has she fallen for this? Yeah. Um, I guess, to me, what was supposed to happen was he sneaks by the window and then he taps on the window to get her looking outside because there's another window inside yes. the building. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's not even when, but that they, they both leave the window before that happens. Right, yeah. Charles shows up and he doesn't realize what they're doing, so he calls out to Arthur, letting Rita in on the scheme. They all make a run for it, but she chases them to the building elevator. Just outside their offices, Arthur and Charles confess that they've made inappropriate personal contact with their target, and he suggests that Charles locate a beard so that he can get closer without giving himself away. Mr. Martin calls the offices angry that his wife is out late every night and he has no idea why. 100% thought they literally wanted him to put a beard on here. <laughs> Took me. Spirit gum on your face. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a cheesy detective movie. I yeah. don't know. 
Leon is furious that his three detectives are all dicking around and his clients are all pissed off. Because I'm on the narrow edge of a precipice. And even the smallest additional irritation could cause me to slip over into a gaping abyss. He pours himself a coffee, but takes his eyes off it and overfills the mug. Out of which I gravely doubt it would be possible for me to climb. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, holy mother. Ah, shit, that burns. Charlie. John is quick to recommend ice. Apparently, Leon does this all the time. Yeah, and he's, he, at first he wants butter. He's like, no, it'll just fry. They promise to get right on updating the client files, and the secretary, Amy, tells Leon he has calls on hold as well, just as another one comes in. Odyssey Detective Agency, we rarely sleep. Which is a paraphrasing of the slogan on the door, we never sleep. Christy wanders into the office to return some of John's personal effects. She makes it a point to kiss Charles in front of John to make him jealous. Arthur gets a call from one of his informants, and suddenly he has to get going. Charles intends to leave with him until Arthur and John propose to each other with hand gestures that perhaps Christy could be Charles's beard for the day. You shaved today, Charlie? What? Yes. Funny, from here, looks like you got a beard. A beard? Nope. Smooth as silk. When he finally catches their meaning, he agrees to take Christy with him as he heads uptown today. She launches into one of her characteristically random stories about her toilet apparently exploding this morning, and John sweeps his hand to communicate, get her out of here, Charles. Um, I like that they, they set up that they have another incoming line called the travel line. Right. Um, and she answers it, Odyssey Travel. Yeah. And the, so whenever they need like a cover or an alternate kind of like, because John Ritter will refer to himself as a travel, a travel agent. agent so I, to me, that's like, oh, so if anyone ever tries to check up on him, yeah. like he has a card that says, you know, so they always have like a set up a cover story. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think that's really a great. That's yeah. their, the front I didn't even line. notice that. John and Leon have a chat in his office while Leon rolls around on the floor trying to straighten his back out. John tells him to go easy on it, and Leon looks concerned by the warning. You gotta go easier on your back, Leon. What's that supposed to mean? Supposed to mean you gotta go easier on your back. On his way out, he tells Amy to take good care of Leon because he's delicate. And again, the comment prods at Leon. After they leave, Amy says Leon has another call from Mrs. Leon. It's your wife again. I left. Where'd you go? Anywhere. Yes, Mrs. Leandopoulos, I'm sorry. He left for an early lunch. Can I give him a message? I will. Have a good day. She's feeling much worse. I'm sorry to hear it. When it's just Leon and Amy in the office, he worries aloud that John knows what's going on between them, but she doesn't care who knows, and they hug and kiss right here. So at this point, we've got Dolores cheating on her husband. We've got Ben Gazzara cheating Wait, on... not just her husband. Her Also her boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's not cheating on her boyfriend yet. Well, she's thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically, she is cheating on her boyfriend because she has a husband. No, there you go. <laughs> um, is, that, is, that, <laughs> is that how that works? That uh, so, and Ben Gazzara is cheating on, well, cheated, formerly, I guess, on yeah. Christy with Sam uh, because yeah. she's upset. And now this guy is cheating on his wife. It's like, is everyone cheating in this movie? Yeah, pretty much. Charles asks the cab to pull over right beside the Jack LaLanne Health Spa, where he expects to find Dolores, and Christy thinks he's just being spontaneous when he says they should get some juice from a street vendor. It's actually, I would like a very large orange juice, yes. A very large orange juice, please. This is so great. I just love the way she says everything. It, yeah, it, her her whole manner of speaking. I was thinking, like, in my mind, like, Margot Kidder in Superman. Yeah. But when you guys said, uh, like, Mid-Atlantic, I was like, oh, yeah, she's totally like Jennifer Jason Lee yeah. in Hudsucker Proxy. Not as fast, but just this very unique 
and it's so funny because when she starts to sing, she's totally different. But but it's still close enough that I'm that you can tell it's her voice doing the singing. Yeah, but but her her singing style makes her seem so energetic. But then when she kind of goes robotic almost when she's in her yeah. normal speaking voice. Charles notices Dolores and Jose taking their dog into a nearby shoe store and immediately suggests they head inside by insulting Christie's shoes. Would you like some new shoes? New shoes? I said, would you like some new shoes? Those are pretty old, aren't they? Well, thanks a lot, Charles. These happen to be an original 30s design from the 30s. That's what I mean. Wouldn't you like some new ones? He manages to talk her into the place and sends her into a changing room while he watches her dog, Harold. Dolores notices him crossing the store and does a double take just before Charles crashes into a mannequin and then apologizes to it. Christy asks about a pair of shoes, and he tells her to try them on without looking. And when she comes back, he's very bluntly honest with her. Jesus, Christy, what are those? Where'd you get those? Those are very unattractive. Well, I hate them, honey. I thought you liked them. No, no. I, I was talking about these boots. Here, why don't you try these on? Anything you say, Charles. Charles intentionally releases Harold, so he'll go bug Dolores' dog for a meet-cute. Christy is quick to retrieve her dog and apologize on behalf of her useless male companion. She strikes up a quick friendship with Dolores and Boyfriend. Dolores, in particular, seems to recognize Christy from her music career. She introduces Charles to the couple, and Charles has to pretend it's his first time meeting Dolores. I love how many times Christy says Charles' name, and Jose still doesn't catch it. Who? Charles. This is Charles. And this is Jose Charles. Charles. Hello. Who are you? I'm Charles. <laughs> Jose, how are you? I'm Jose. Oh, good. <laughs> Suddenly, the other three girls from the roller rink show up, and they're all talking at once. Arthur and John meet up outside Angela's hotel and follow her out. They- so, so at this point, again, based on the description yeah. of the IMDb description of this, I was like, this is a, another detective agency. Oh, like, this is like rivals? A, this, is gonna, like, this is like a Charlie's Angels detective agency who are also like either doing some kind of security or protection of this woman, because why else... Are they always around? Yeah. That yeah, that was actually frustrating for me was that everybody seems to always be in the same place as everyone else, just coincidentally. Yeah. I mean, they're in a small part of town, maybe. I don't know. It's New York. New York is very small. No. That's why they call it the small apple. <laughs> the smapple. Smapple. Just little no. facts on the bottom of the cap. Arthur and John meet up outside Angela's hotel and follow her out. They're taking bets on who will show up first, her boyfriend or her husband. Although she doesn't appear to have a boyfriend in this film, right? It's just her husband that she's dealing with until one of them becomes her boyfriend. Yeah. She jogs into a bookstore and John shadows her through the place but points Arthur to the back door. It's clear she knows she's being followed and randomly speeds up and changes direction all over the place. Arthur doesn't even realize how close Angela is until she's right in front of him, and he spins to look away, but then notices, by coincidence, that inside the shoe store he's now facing, he can see Charles, Jose, and the five other lovely ladies we've been following for this film so far. It's like, oh, the whole cast is here. So unnecessary. Yeah. John keeps up with Angela as she steps down into the skating rink at Rockefeller Plaza. She meets up with her husband and son, and the three head together to a luxury car. It seems like this is just a kid handoff and dad is leaving for the week. The whole semi-chase sequence is scored with Sinatra's version of They All Laughed. Back at the shoe store, everybody heads outside together and make plans to meet up later in the day. As they part ways, Christy insists that Charles join her back to her apartment and he nearly trips over her dog on the way to the taxi. John and Arthur get Angela cornered in a toy store with her son and head in together. 
Mother and son are playing at a toy shooting range inside, and John and Arthur are unconvincingly playing father and son next to them. He's not really your son. Sure he is. He curls his hair to embarrass me. He's an aging hippie, my son. Arthur flirts with the sales girl while John keeps his eyes on Angela. We're almost an hour into this film now and hearing Audrey Hepburn's voice for the first time. She leaves her son at the range with Arthur, and John follows her away across the store. She holds up a penguin puppet and warns him that her husband often pays men to follow her around. Please, my husband has me followed. Yeah, I know. He slips her his business card. I'm following you. This is definitely not how you're supposed to do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if she knows that people are following her on a regular basis, then why is she acting so like, uh-oh, there's somebody following me? I mean, well, I, I she doesn't think that this is the guy following her. She mm. thinks that this is just a guy trying to hit on her. And so she's like, just so you know, my husband pays people to oh, keep okay. you guys away from me. I see what you're saying. And he's like, no, he's paying me to keep me guys away from you. <laughs> but of course, you're going to attract sleazeballs if you have a company where it's like, hey, do you want to follow hot cheater women around all the time? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fuck yeah. And then they get in trouble all the time. This is probably actually how they do it every time. They're just like... I'll just take her out for for dates the entire time and then we can send her back to her husband and no one's the wiser and everything's fine. He invites her to lunch now that there's no hidden detectives to worry about. The four of them leave the store together but Angela is quick to ditch them again. On their way out, John and Arthur steal the puppet penguin. No, they pay for it. Did they? Yeah, they put money on the counter. Oh, okay. John hatches a plan to reconnect with them. I think you better get your sisters. Your sisters? Tell them they're working. John wanders off toward where Angela went. We cut back to Christie's place as she and Charles enter. She puts on a record of her own music. Charles is worried that this visit might lead in a sexual direction and announces that he has a headache. She offers a touch assist as a remedy. What? A touch assist. A touch assist. It'll relieve all your pressure, Charles. You'll feel like a cloud in pants. <laughs> a cloud in pants? <laughs> she walks into her room to show off her terrace, which is not a terrace. That's not a terrace, Christy. That's a ledge. No, really, Charles. Come on. No, no, Christy, don't. My goodness, Charles. You really are nervous today. He surrenders himself to the touch assist and lays on the bed beside her as she pokes him in the back with her finger in various places and asks if he can feel it. This seems more like a are you paralyzed test <laughs> than a touch assist. Uh, as funny as some of the jokes are in this, this whole scene should have been cut. No, I love it. Uh, it, it didn't move anything forward. It moved me Mo forward. Most, <laughs> most of the scenes, I don't think, move stuff forward. No, this this one was great, though. I, I love the the one glimpse we get into, like, what it's actually like to be on a date with this person. Because everything else is them interacting in public with people mm. around. And this is what she's like behind closed doors. She's a total weirdo. Like she's a weirdo in public, too. Yeah, but she's a different weirdo here. She asks him to put his arm around her, and her hand slides to his crotch, and he pulls it away. She plants one more kiss on him, and he gives in, rolling over and poking her with something. <laughs> Maybe a finger? Feel my finger. Oh, Charles. The phone rings, and she wanders away from him. Jose wants to firm up their plans for tonight. After the call, she asks for more <laughs> kisses. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was like, my plans are pretty firm at the moment. Oh, dear. After the call, she asks for more kisses, and Charles turns her down, but then kisses her anyway. Arthur and his sisters find Angela and her son entering a restaurant and follow them inside, sneaking through the kitchen. Arthur sits at the table beside Angela with all his curly hair tucked up in his hat, and a couple minutes later, the girls follow him in, pretending to look for him. Excuse me. Are these seats taken? 
Oh, by the way, have you seen Arthur? Yeah, where is Arthur? Where's Arthur? He whips his curls out, and Angela's son Michael cracks up at the transformation. I thought it was you. You did not. You did not. You didn't tie his shoelaces. Oh my god. Arthur, where'd you pick these two up? Angela is amused to see Arthur again until John appears behind her, and somehow it took this moment for her to realize they followed her here. And she doesn't she didn't just coincidentally sit at the table next to Arthur. I really fell right into that one, didn't I? I'm wondering if the fact that he didn't tie his shoelaces is the reason he was able to get his roller skates off faster because he never ties his shoelaces after their meal it seems they've talked angela into letting arthur watch all three kids before he steals her child arthur produces the penguin puppet from his pocket it's for you you forgot this guy before oh, yeah well it's not mine it's his arthur gives her the penguin and then jumps in the cab with the kids i mean okay so at this point I guess she's assuming that they are who they say they are, and she leaves her son with this guy. Uh, yeah, but they've, they've had a dinner together, so there's probably like an hour that we didn't see that they spent convincing her that they're not crazy people. Sure. Uh, but back at the toy shop, <laughs> she, she does walk away. She from does them. walk away from her son, who is getting very chummy with Arthur before she has any idea that yeah. this man isn't just some random dude off the street. And they go off and wander off together while she talks to, to, to John. It did seem like the point of her doing that was she left him with a saleswoman and Arthur, and she left him intentionally trying to bring john across the store so they could have a conversation together yeah i just i, I she doesn't know who these people are and she right. just left them with her son she's a very trusting person maybe to a fault she and john go for a walk together and she tries to get a feel for if his affection is genuine interest mr russo promise we'll never get married i promise promise we'll never fall in love i promise Mr. Russo, I'm beginning to like you. The next shot starts with a crack of fortuitous lightning that brightens the whole sky just as a car rolls by. It stops outside the City Limits Club, where Christy performs, and it looks like she and Charles are here on a double date with Dolores and Jose. When they get inside, the band is singing one of Christy's songs without her. Charles takes her to the dance floor to entice their friends to join them, and Christy's not an idiot. She can see what's happening here, so she steals Jose away from Dolores so Charles can dance with her. Then she ditches Jose and hops up on stage to sing, and Jose seems enamored with her. Charles and Dolores almost take the opportunity to kiss, but back off at the last second. When the song ends, Christy jumps off the stage and Jose catches and kisses her. Dolores looks more pleased than jealous, like it's given her permission. John and Angela are still walking the streets when they get close to his place. She thinks it's a convenient pickup line, but he says there's a friend using his place right now, a taxi driver. They enter the apartment to find Sam writing a thank you slash goodbye note, and she leaves without much fanfare. Why do you call her Sam? Well, she doesn't look like a Deborah. Well, she doesn't look like a Sam. She looks more like a Sam than a Deborah. Why don't you call me Steve? Okay, Steve. As Christy and Jose walk together, she is flattered by his protective vehicular escort. He tells her he's 19, and she's a bit shocked. She leaves him at the door and heads into her own place because she has an early morning rehearsal. Blocks away, Charles drops off Dolores outside her house and nearly follows her up to the door, but suddenly Jose is pulling up behind him and he retreats across the street to watch her fight with her husband again. She takes her dog outside for a walk and it leads her right to Charles. Why, Charles, what are you doing down there? I, I couldn't leave. They finally kiss and then she runs home. 
The next morning, she leaves her apartment with bags packed and jumps in a cab with Jose. Charles wakes from sleeping on a concrete bench just in time to follow them in another cab to the local courthouse. Inside, he seems to lose track of them, but Christy is here, watching him in secret, and seems to know what he's up to. Mm-hmm. Why? Is, so, is Christy here as a witness or... Witness to what? I don't know, because I don't know why she's here. I'll tell you what I think is happening here. Okay. I'm more confused why Dolores is here based on what I think is happening here. Okay. But uh, I got really excited because I recognize this building. Um, I mean, it's 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 City Hall, so yeah. it's probably used on a lot of films. But I specifically recognized it from the 1947 Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> okay. Uh, because there's a scene. Uh, a big circular. Yeah, uh, the big the room middle. full of columns where one of the I can't remember the actor's name at the moment. Um, he's walking across it, um, and I was like, oh, this is like a really unique unique building. And then when um, Charles uh, uh, Charles runs into the building, he's like, oh, my God, I know I've seen this building before. <laughs> um, and so I had a quick review. Yeah. Which is weird because when I was trying to find that scene in Miracle on 34th Street, I was like, oh, here it is. It's for free streaming on this site. And I'm watching it. What? I was like, what is this? It's a black and white Miracle on 34th Street, but all the actors look weird. And I'm like scanning through. It's going like scene by scene. It all looks the same. I was looking at one from 1955 that's almost like a shot-for-shot remake. Huh. Um, And I was like, why would they remake Miracle on 34th Street six, seven years later? I don't know. Ask Moana. (laughs) It was was so weird because I thought I was going crazy. It's like none of these actors look like the right actors. Yeah, that's very weird. She ducks into a courtroom with Dolores and Jose inside, but we're kept outside the room watching through a window, so we can't hear what's going on. In the lobby of her own hotel... Angela gets a telegram from her husband that he's coming home earlier than expected. When she shares the news with Michael, he's as disappointed as she is. She drops Michael off with the girls again outside of school or something. Are they all in the same grade and they're being dropped off at school together? I I guess. I mean, They didn't recognize each other from school before, but now they all go to the same school. Well, he's just visiting, though, so he obviously doesn't go to school there. Then where are they going? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure they were going into a school because there were a bunch of other kids with backpacks walking into a building together. Angela finds John watching her across the street. They walk some more. Charles gets back to the building that houses their detective agency, and Arthur is outside again signaling for another waitress distraction. Another unnecessary waitress distraction. You seen Arthur? If I see him, I'm going to cut his thing off. Okay, I'll tell him. Arthur crawls by in clear view of the angry waitress. She's literally like up against the window looking at him. John and Angela show up outside the building as well, and John ducks inside for what he promises will be a quick visit. Angela starts to cross the street, and suddenly Sam shows up and parks to chase her down on foot. Angela! Hey, Angela! This is the only part that kind of confused me, because they greet each (laughs) other with a peck on the cheek like they're old buddies that have known each other for a long time. It's like, no, you had one, like, awkward encounter last night Mm -hmm. where you traded places in john's apartment and that was it you're not like best buds i don't know what's going on here and i was like is there more to their relationship than we knew before but there's not they're just implying that this is how friendly these two people would be right off the bat (laughs) it's funny when you said that this is the one thing that didn't confuse me i went i was like going to clue one thing yep (laughs) just this (laughs) which is funny because that's also with calling camp yeah The three detectives enter the seemingly empty office and follow Leon's voice behind his desk where he's laying on the floor. Predictably, Leon has just gotten an angry call from the husband that Dolores left this morning, and Charles has no info for him. 
Charles confesses that he followed Dolores and her boyfriend Jose to City Hall this morning, and they brought luggage. This is the first Leon's hearing of any confirmed adultery. He tells Charles to figure out where the hell she went, and also tells John that his case following Angela is over, because her husband came home early. Leon also mentions that they need to keep a lookout for a new secretary because Amy left. When they're alone in the office together, Leon tries to confess to John that he and Amy were an item, and John informs him that the whole office knows and nobody cares. Christy pushes into the office again with a stack of flyers in her hands for her next show. Christy drops hints that she knows where Dolores went. What do you mean, what do I mean? What do you mean couldn't follow an elephant up fifth? My goodness, Charles, you're very agitated this morning. Would you have a bad day in court? There. Did you hear that? She knows where they are. Where are they, Christy? Please. You're today, Charles. What, are you growing a beard? Unclear if this is her admitting she understands their jargon or mm -hmm. if it's a legitimate question because he slept on a bench last night and he actually has a five o'clock shadow this time. John agrees with Charles that Christy probably knows everything, including the whereabouts of their missing secretary. Yes. I do. You see? What? She's in the ladies' room. Amy walks in and immediately answers another call from Mrs. Leon on the phone. John heads back downstairs to Angela. Christy follows him, and the other guys follow her. It's Mrs. Leandopoulos. Could you tell her I'm not here? You tell her. Hello? I'm not here. <laughs> That's what he tells his wife on the phone. He hangs up and admits to Amy that he loves her and kisses her to prove it. Outside, John finds Sam and Angela, the ladies he's currently juggling, chatting across the street. Christy walks away, and Arthur tells Charles to back off and they could just follow her to Dolores. Christy goes to hand flyers to Johnny's new girlfriends. Sam has to get back to work, and Christy needs a ride, so they leave together, leaving John and Angela alone. Well, I must say you have very good taste in women, which is more than could be said about my taste in men. Uh-huh. Where does that leave me? Dangling miserably, I hope. They go for another walk, and she suggests they head back to his place. And take me to your loft again and ravish me. Talk too much, you know that? I know that. Christy has basically planned for Arthur and Charles to follow her. Yep, here they come. What'd I tell you? Hang on. And coordinates with Sam to take a sudden sharp left, causing a multi-car collision between all the vehicles behind them, including Arthur and Charles. Now, the taxi driver is really upset with them. It's like, well, this is your fault. Yeah. Like, he tells them not to go anywhere. It's like, because they're witnesses or it's because you're blaming them. Yeah. But I love the cabbie in in his frustration slams his passenger car door. And the window shatters. The window shatters. Yeah. And you see John Ritter go, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I hope we got that on one take. We cut to post-coital John and Angela, and then we cut right to Christie's show that night. Everybody's here except seemingly Dolores and Jose, but then there she is, sneaking up behind Charles at his table and taking a seat before offering him a stick of gum to get the cigarette taste out of his mouth. Dolores, will you marry me? Okay, I will. You will? Well, yes, after my divorce. Oh. Well, okay. I can wait. Jose is here too, and waits by Christie's dressing room. At this point, I'm assuming that she and Jose were getting a marriage license at the courthouse this morning. Okay, and Christy and it, Jose. And Dolores. Dolores is just there as a witness? I don't know why Dolores was there. Dolores was there because she wants to move out of her house with her husband and she needed a ride. And so he helped her get out. And then they all met at the courthouse. Arthur successfully hits on Sam at the bar. Another of Arthur's semi-girlfriends shoots a flirtatious smirk at a member of Christie's band, and a different girlfriend flirts with a different band member. 
Charles and Dolores stare deeply into each other's eyes. Outside, John and Angela walk slowly back to her hotel. That's where I turn into a pumpkin. She apologizes for missing Christie's show, but says they can try tomorrow. Arthur swings by to drop off Michael, and Michael tells her that he and John's daughter Georgina have decided to exchange love letters. The next day, Leon is dropped off beside the helipad again, and John meets them here. Yeah, uh, I was really confused because I came. I had an error watching the movie. You and thought it was just starting over. Yeah, and I was trying to get back to the point, and it was just it was them at the helipad. I was like, oh crap, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it's the same shot sequence from the beginning of the film over again. Sam watches everything from her cab. Angela stands separate from her family as they board the helicopter. Mr. Angela steps away to talk to Leon, and Angela and John get one last moment alone together. They admit to each other that they've both broken their promise not to fall in love. They lock eyes through the helicopter window as she lifts up and out of his life, the only unrequited love the film has to offer. Johnny walks a bit down the road until Sam picks him up. What'd you have in mind? Go over to Brooklyn, raise some hell. Sounds good. We cut to Christy and Jose, married on the steps of City Hall. We cut to Leon and Amy, wrapping up a lovemaking session on his office floor. Arthur's four competing girlfriends surround him with murder weapons until he wakes up in bed beside Rita. Charles and Dolores take off their glasses to kiss, but then their glasses get all tangled up together and they laugh about it. They all laughed. John rides in Sam's passenger seat, reflecting on his week with Angela and the credits roll over her helicopter disappearing on the horizon. The end. Woof. They all laughed. They all laughed. They did, guys. I didn't. <laughs> you didn't laugh? I, I had some chuckles. I think... Colleen Camp saves this movie for me. I mean, obviously, Ritter's a lot of fun, and Ben Gazzara's. I had no problem with any of the acting. Actually, whatsoever. yeah, the whole cast is wonderful. The acting was fine. The people in this movie are fine. the The pacing and the writing choices, like I just, it was so frustrating. You know, when I watch a movie, I don't want to have to work this hard to try to understand what's happening when it's not supposed to be. It's not like a complex issue I'm trying to figure yeah. out in the movie. It's literally the plot. It was the third time watching it before I realized that uh, Dolores and Jose lived next door to each other. And we're yeah. just going in separate doors to the same place or going up the same steps like... It's shot in a profile sometimes, or it's just like, I can barely tell that they're going into different doors. Mm-hmm. Why Why is this so hard to figure out? Uh, and again, what I had mentioned before is that you have to be brought in on the case. I know what you were saying before that Bogdanovich wanted to create uh, a personal story that's not about the detective. Yeah. But that fails because I know that they're detectives and I'm trying to solve what mystery is happening. Yeah. And there is not one. There is not a mystery in this film. Everyone knows who what everyone is doing. Yeah. And I didn't because they keep it from they keep it from you. The person well, who knows the most though is Christy. She should really work for this agency. Yeah. But I think the other thing that it suffers from is is not just that, but who's the main character of this movie? I think Ritter. Are you sure? Because I don't feel like we spend, a, a, you know, enough time with any one of them for them yeah. to be the main character. No, I think that's true. But I do think Ritter is supposed to be the central, like, you're always rooting for the guy that's pursuing the girl. I, I But so is John. But John has her from the get-go. I guess. But, you know, I guess my point is that we don't, we don't really get to know any one of these characters very well. Yeah. Right. Because we're jumping between all of these random stories that are confusing enough, but there isn't a lot of character development. Yeah. I, I think he's relying a lot on the archetypes 
that we know who Ben Gazzara is because we've just seen this character before. The divorced guy who literally every woman who shakes his hand falls in love with him. And he can just do whatever he wants and be super slick all the time. And then we also have the the Arthur character who's like kind of the young gun version of that. Who talks a great game but is like not necessarily as smooth as the Ben Gazzara character, but he still like lands every woman he goes I, for. Yeah, but but what you're describing is like shorthand that we can use in like an action movie. It's when you're doing a personal story and you're trying to do an, you know, an intimate talky kind of film. Yeah. You don't use those shorthands because the po- the point is to get to know these characters. The point is that they're not totally archetypes. They they have uniqueness to them. Yeah, and there's there's nothing to the John backstory. It's literally yeah. just he has two daughters. Yeah, that's he, all we know about him. Well, and Ritter, the most we learn about him in his first couple of bits is that he's following this woman. We don't know yet that they're detectives. We just right. know that they're following. And he says, I want to kiss her on the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this I, is, this I is the character growth that we have. It's definitely a weird choice that we only watch this detective agency handle two cases. And in both of them, one of their lead agents is like, I'm just going to make love to this person and marry mm-hmm. them. It's like, is this what they do every time? Because it seems a lot like this is what they do every time. That they're just like, as soon as it's an attractive person, they're like, we just divvy it up and we go, who who gets this one? Yeah. I'm going to marry this one. Sorry, I, I lost track when you were re- recapping the plot. Did you, you mentioned that they have weddings. Yes. Okay. The, the wedding at the end is... Christy and Jose getting married. Well, but also uh, Charles and Dolores. Yeah, Charles and Dolores. Do we see them get married? They're they're, They're they're together behind them, but they also look like they're They're, in wedding outfits. I I didn't think those outfits looked like wedding outfits, so I assume they were witnesses to the ceremony, but maybe it was a A joint wedding wedding thing. Who knows? In which case, I don't even know which one of them married which one. Yeah. Because both of them have two boyfriends and two girlfriends. It would be rather quick for a joint wedding, considering it's it's been a day. Yeah. Because the lady, uh, because but also uh, the kid is nineteen. <laughs> like Jose is nineteen years old. Yeah, you got to lock him down early, right? Yeah, I guess. And that's uh, they all laughed. I give it a thumbs up just because I like the characters a lot. I I I I I'm struggling with this one because I want to give it a thumbs down, but. It wasn't poorly made and it wasn't poorly acted. I just think it was poorly assembled. It was it was a little tricky to watch, for sure. I think I'm going to give it a thumbs down. Uh, it's a definite thumbs down for me. I, I I was frustrated, and and all the charm that some of the movie had was just lost because the, things aren't explained well. Yeah, enough. things aren't. There there really is almost no plot. Yeah, the fact that we don't know who the main character married at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> tells you a lot We're like i don't or know who there the were... main character was yeah <laughs> i i thought this movie was going to be about sam i'm gonna be honest when this oh movie really st- from the beginning when this movie starts off with with her i was like okay so i this... knew it wasn't the second she started doing terrible accents i was like okay this is a side <laughs> character <laughs> why do you start on her yeah like there's a lot of weird choices here yeah. in, in the way this was assembled but that's funny yeah i mean going through the movie you're like i have no idea which one of these people is important you have to tell me (laughs) by by focusing on them but you never do that with anybody yeah um what are we doing letterbox for this jess uh so it actually didn't end up quite as far down as i was uh (laughs) anticipating uh i have it at 60 so it's kind of in the middle uh that's out of how many now uh 100 and 
162. Oh my gosh. So it did better than, is it right? Are we really at 162? We are. So it actually did better than halfway. Um, it is below Fox and the Hound and above Bust and Loose. Richard? Um, I have it at 80, uh, which puts it below Continental Divide, but above Kill and Kill Again. I have it in 58, which is just under Demonoid Messenger of Death and just above Wolfen. Our director here, writer and director, was Peter Bogdanovich, who also does the voice of the DJ on uh, the radio whenever we hear it. His first feature was Targets from a script by Samuel Fuller. Later, he directs Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, Nickelodeon. He also directed after this Mask, The Cat's Meow, and an episode of The Sopranos on which he made 14 appearances as Dr. Elliot Kupferberg, the therapist of the therapist of Tony Soprano. Oh, that makes so much more sense why he looks familiar to me. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. He also has a considerable number of acting credits, occasionally in his own films. Like I said, he was a DJ in this, but he's also a DJ in Last Picture Show. He also appears in Cold Turkey, not that Cold Turkey. While We're Young, The Other Side of the Wind, and he's credited as Peter-Director in It Chapter 2. I don't know what that means. Uh, Is it like behind-the-scenes footage of a Peter Bogdanovich movie within the movie It? Um, yeah, there is there is something being directed Okay. And I'm trying to remember what it was. I I think it was something with Bill Hader's character. Okay. Uh, The co-writer here was Blaine Novak, who plays Arthur Brodsky in the film. He wrote the movie with the director. Um, This was his first acting credit and his first writing credit. And later he writes and acts in Stranger's Kiss. And he appears in Up the Creek as Captain Braverman. The cinematographer here was Robbie Mueller. He's a DP so far on the show for Honeysuckle Rose, and later he lights Repo Man, Paris, Texas, Down by Law, Barfly, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, 24-Hour Party People, and Coffee and Cigarettes. A lot of Jarmouche in there. Uh, Editor here was William C. Carruth, who also cut Nickelodeon and Caddyshack, and the other editor was Scott Vickery. This was his first editing credit, and he later cuts Invasion USA, and then mostly television, so Law & Order, Ghost Whisperer, Fringe, The Good Wife, Audrey Hepburn played Angela Neotes. She was Princess Anne in Roman Holiday, Sabrina in Sabrina, Funny Face in Funny Face, Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Later, she's in Charade, My Fair Lady, and her only film after this was Spielberg's Always, in which she plays a sort of godlike character named mm-hmm. Hap, who cuts your hair after you die. Yeah. I remember someone asked me once what my favorite film representation of god was or what i hoped god would be when i got there i was like i just want audrey hepburn to sit down and cut my hair (laughs) that's what i want uh bogdanovich has described this film as a modern day roman holiday hence the casting of hepburn this was her last time with top billing though because she's a, a lower lower build on always ben gazzaro was john russo He's in Anatomy of Murder, Husbands, The Neptune Factor, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Inchon. He's Brad Wesley in Roadhouse, Jackie Treehorn in The Big Lebowski, and Jimmy Brown, father of Billy Brown in Buffalo 66. He had worked with Bogdanovich once before on St. Jack, a performance which earned him his part in Sidney Sheldon's Bloodline, where he met and fell in love with co-star Audrey Hepburn. Patty Henson played Sam. Before this, she was in Rich Kids, and after this, she was in Hard to Hold, and that's basically it, because two years after this film, she was married to Keith Richards, and they are still together today. Taxi Driver. John Ritter played Charles Rutledge. 
He jumped to superstardom as Jack Tripper in 172 episodes of Three's Company. We've seen him so far in Hero at Large and Holy Moses. Later, he's the dad in the Problem Child films. At the time of his sudden death by heart attack, he was starring as the father on Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, or I guess it had changed to Eight Simple Rules by then. Mm. Uh, his son is Jason Ritter, who is also an actor and voice actor who I first connect to Gravity Falls as the voice of Dipper Pines. And... Uh, John Ritter had appeared earlier in Bogdanovich's Nickelodeon and then later in Noises Off as he and the director were lifelong friends. Um, they did a great thing on Scrubs. Uh, right. The, he was the brother or something? Uh, he was uh, Zach Braff's dad. Oh, dad. Okay. And and when he passed away, they did a whole episode about him having died. Oh, when, when Ritter actually passed yeah. away. Oh, interesting. Dorothy Stratton played Dolores Martin. She was a Playboy Playmate of the Year, who we last saw as the titular Galaxina, and as I mentioned, she was killed by her estranged husband shortly after this film's production. Linda McEwen played Amy Lester. That's the secretary at the office. She was Eleanor... So, sorry, just to go back. Yeah. So, she she died before this movie came out, right? Yes. Almost immediately after it finished shooting. Okay. So, maybe, was it a short post-production? Because... Or did uh, it no, sit? Did it being... sit? So it sat on the shelf for a while. Yeah, because she died in in eighty. She died in eighty. In late nineteen eighty. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense too. <laughs> There's a lot of roller skating in this, and I feel like we we saw that fade out in seventy nine and the beginning of eighty. Yeah. No. It it ended up just being such a hard sell that all these studios were like, "That's too sad. We can't sell a comedy where the lead actress is dead. Like yeah. that's that's not something that we can make work. Yeah. And sell it to people and make it a happy go lucky thing." And so he was like, I'm going to do it myself because somebody has to put this out. You know, she made this like she's a part of this production. So it would be really shitty of us to just put it on a shelf and be like, that was the last thing she ever did. And no one saw it because yeah. it was going to be her breakout thing. Like she was definitely going to go on to be in more stuff. Right, right. Linda McEwen played Amy Lester. She's Eleanor Dunbar in Footloose. She was a secretary and personal assistant to Bogdanovich and had asked to be considered for a part in the film and was cast as another secretary. She showed up again for Bogdanovich in 1988's Illegally Yours. George Morfogan played Leon Leondopoulos. He was a head waiter in What's Up, Doc? He was Sherman Spratt in Those Lips, Those Eyes, but he's possibly best known as Bob Ribado from HBO's Oz. Colleen Camp played Christy Miller. She's Julie in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. She's Billy's girl in Funny Lady. She was a playmate, Miss May, in Apocalypse Now. Later, she appears in Valley Girl, Smokey and the Bandit 3. She's Yvette in Clue, Mrs. Vanderhoff in Wayne's World, Ratcliffe in Last Action Hero, and Connie Kowalski in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Sean Hepburn Ferrer played Jose. This was his only credited role, and he is the son of Audrey Hepburn and Mel Ferrer. So the guy who played Jose is actually Audrey Hepburn's son. Huh. His name is Jose in the film as a joke on the fact that Mel Ferrer was so often mistaken as a relative of Jose Ferrer's. Mm. So they were like, oh, are you related to Jose? And you could say, well, my son played a Jose once. Glenn Scarpelli played Michael Neotes. That's the person playing Audrey Hepburn's son. He was an acapella singer in One Trick Pony. He's Tony Milani in MacGyver episode Live and Learn. He's also apparently in the Gregory Brothers TV movie, but I don't know if that even officially aired anywhere. But the Gregory Brothers put together a TV movie. It's directed by Peyton Reed. Do um, you know who the Gregory Brothers are? A lot no, of viral but... video music. They do like the mm. Kimmy Schmidt theme song. Okay, okay. Um, and they do like the Hide Your Kids, Hide Your Wife. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. All those, all those songs are them. Auto-tune the news. Auto-tune the news, yeah. 
Antonia Bogdanovich played Stefania Russo. She's the daughter of director Bogdanovich, and she also shows up in a few of his films. She's also an uncredited psychiatric patient in Bottle Rocket from Wes Anderson. Sashi Bogdanovich played Georgina Russo, uh, another of the director's daughters. Hardly any credits, but she did work as a production assistant on Congo, Nixon, and Austin Powers. Fun little collection there. Lisa Dunsheath played Tulips. That's one of the skater girls. She was Sherry in The Prowler. Joyce Heiser played Sylvia. She was Brenda Weintraub in Hollywood Nights last season, and later she shows up in Valley Girl, Staying Alive, This is Spinal Tap, and Just One of the Guys. Tulips or two lips? Both lips. I'm just wondering how it was spelled. <laughs> like the flower. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's less interesting. <laughs> so T W O L I T S. What? Two L's. That's how I spell <laughs> Elizabeth Pena played Rita. We saw her last as a disco hostess in Times Square. Later, she's Rosie Morales in La Bamba, Maris Estevel in Batteries Not Included, Jesse in Jacob's Ladder, and she voices Mirage in The Incredibles. Zai Ma played uncredited. I don't. I didn't even see him in here, but I know what he looks like. He's Wing Lee in MacGyver episode Children of Light. He's Tak Akita in RoboCop 2, but I know him best as Consul Han in the Rush Hour movies. And I guess he's an ambassador by the end of the trilogy. But he also appeared in an episode of A&E's The Beast, which I worked on as a post-production assistant. Marianne Mueller-Lyle is a dinner guest. I didn't see her in here either, but I like her. We've seen her so far in Hero at Large, also with our good friend Ritter. Uh, Willie and Phil, Stardust Memories, Arthur, and Endless Love. She's possibly best known as the wrong Sarah from Terminator, the one who gets shot in the head in the doorway. But she's also the tattoo artist in Memento. John Murray played Foley Square Guy. I didn't see him in here either, but John Murray is Bill Murray's brother, who plays his brother James in Scrooged. Um, he's also in Caddyshack and Elf. John Scholl played something uncredited. He has two soundtrack credits on Jason X, one for a song called Jason Jam, and one for X is the Loneliest Number. <laughs> <laughs> Joe L. Saunier played another uncredited person. He was Sunshine in Mask. Alex Stevens is another uncredited character. We've seen him so far in Hercules in New York. He was the werewolf in 23 episodes of Dark Shadows, and we've also seen him in Gloria and Scanners. Victoria Vanderkloot is also an uncredited character. We've seen her so far as one of the Lizzies in The Warriors and as the pen thief in The Fan. Remember oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the person tried to get the autograph and then ran away with the pen and then Michael Bean just fucking karate chopped her ass? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's everything for They All Laughed. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Just Before Dawn, which IMDb describes like so. Five young people venture into the backwoods of Oregon to claim a property and find themselves being stalked by a hulking, machete-wielding psychopath. This is new territory for us. We just watched We've movies. never watched anything like this before, and we're never going to again. We leave you now with the trailer. Promise? No. <laughs> Every week for the rest of the year. Just before dawn. Trailer. Now, listen to it. Run for your life. The nightmare has begun. It will find you in the hour when dream and reality merge. The last desperate moment of darkness. Hi, who is it? Just before dawn. They were warned. At least tell me where you're going, so that when you don't come back, I'll know how to fill out the report. But they did not understand the warning. Daddy, what'd you say? Shh. Oh, yeah.
They came to the mountain for adventure and escape. What they found was a trial which only the strongest could survive. How could they know that beneath the awesome beauty of nature lay violence, danger, and death? You see all the blood? How could they know the heat of their bodies was the magnet that would draw the terror to them? No more devils. No more. No more nothing out there. Just God's little creature. You saw them kids? I see them. Don't like up here again. I a good mind to just let them have their due. Just before dawn comes horror. Just before dawn comes death. Rated R. 